Welcome to this episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. I'm your host, Holly, and joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This episode contains mentions of institutionalization, Nazis, ableism, eugenics, medical procedures, sexism, and racism. This is all starting to sound kind of familiar. We must be getting closer to the present. Yep, we sure are. But before we get into today's information, uh, Maya, when is a cigar just a cigar? Every time that it's an actual cigar. Every time it's a cigar, there's no hidden symbology that you think is, like, hiding behind every, like, cylindrical object? No. (laughs) Freud was wrong. There are literal cigars. (laughs) Although he was making that point, notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. He did this to us. Cigars are often just cigars. I, I, we were joking about this earlier, but I think it's very funny that Freud went through all of these different layers of symbology with all of his patients, and a lot of it was very sexual in nature, but when it comes to him putting a cigar in his mouth, all of a sudden, it's just a cigar. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. I mean, I will say it doesn't help when you slowly lick them while making a lot of eye contact. So that's just (laughs) for our listeners, you know. I don't want to think about Freud that way. (laughs) Well, we will be talking about Freud today. Um, Despite Holly's best efforts to excise Freud from from this episode. Yeah, it turns out that he was in a very important stepping stone in a lot of what we're talking about. So we will be covering Freud today. However, we've got some kind of unfinished business from the last episode where last we left off, the asylums were proliferating and there was an explosion in the number of the asylums and who was getting uh, roped up into them. So before psychoanalysis, before Freud, before the phallic cigar, we need to revisit the asylum system. Right. So this episode begins at the point where the asylum population in the U.S. and Europe have gone up dramatically. Optimism about the prospects of treatment at the beginning of the 1800s had in turn led to the construction of more and more institutions. This growth continued through the beginning of the 1900s. Asylums that housed 100 or so inmates at the beginning of the century had grown to house thousands. These large asylums could be worlds unto themselves with their own water supply, chapel, and graveyard. At Milledgeville in Georgia, the asylum eventually confined almost 14,000 patients. On Long Island, a group of asylums in, in Central Islip, Kings Park, and later Pilgrim State Hospital collectively had 30,000 patients. For context, this would make them roughly the size of a, of a mid-sized university. For conditions in the asylums, there was a lot of experimentation that was going on at this time. And for those who thought that madness was in the body as opposed to in the mind, that it's a somatic, there were treatments that were experimented with. Note that these experiments do not pass scientific muster today and would largely be seen as torture. These included the bath of surprise, which is when you got doused with water abruptly and that was supposed to shock you into 
no longer being mad. Um, electroshock therapy, ice baths, hypothermia, uh, pyrotherapy, which is uh, exposing people to extreme heat for prolonged periods of time, and insulin comas. So, but to get into one of these institutions could actually be fairly simple. Um, there's a story of Elizabeth Parsons Ware Packard, who was committed to um, the Illinois State Asylum at Jacksonville by her husband, Theophilus Packard, in 1860. We're, we're going to quote from a mad people's history of madness here. Quote, she insisted that she was locked up for simply expressing religious opinions in a community who were unprepared to appreciate or understand them. But according to the Illinois Commitment Law of 1851, Packard's sanity or madness did not matter. Married women could be held indefinitely solely on the authority of their husbands with the concurrence of the asylum superintendent, end quote. She went on to publish an account of her experiences in what she called her living tomb, she advocated for the rights of women and those confined to asylums and successfully lobbied the state legislature to pass a personal liberty bill requiring a jury trial before someone could be committed. This bill was eventually repealed and jury trials for the committed were largely replaced with the support of psychiatrists. By the middle of the 1900s, nearly all commitments were taking place without appeal to a jury. All it took was a sign-off from one or two psychiatric experts. So we're in a moment in the late 1800s and early 1900s where there's been an idea that treatment can be effective. And with that optimism, lots of institutions were built and then they start to be filled as in the experience of Elizabeth where Parsons Packard um, in some cases by people who are being involuntarily committed, by people in their family systems. And there's this growing number, thousands upon thousands of people in, like what you said, a world unto themselves. And while they're in these institutions, methods are being developed with some with scientific approaches, some with compassion, some without, to both manage symptoms and manage the huge number of people that are being held in these institutions. So this is really, you know, as we're sitting in kind of modern treatment of madness in the late 1800s in the US, this is really what we're seeing at the forefront is institutional care. I think it's also really important to take a look at the last part of Elizabeth Packard's story where she initially um, is able to lobby for juries to decide whether or not people go to asylum and that people have a due process through the court system, which maybe while not ideal, she's using the system that's available to her, which is the judicial system. Essentially to prevent what happened to her, where her husband and one professional who is part of the asylum system are able to involuntarily commit her. And she's trying to appeal to kind of a broader population, to appeal to a, a jury of her peers to weigh in on a decision like that. Right, which you could see as a bit of a roll of the dice. Absolutely. 
Um, but again, like you said, she's using the system available to bring in eyes that are not medical, that are not familial into situations of this kind. And I imagine ideally non-patriarchal or less patriarchal, though with the jury selection, you never really know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's very interesting that this winds up getting repealed and that all commitments now take this, not, not signing off with a husband, but with a medical professional, but husbands were still involved in this process, I'm sure. Right, and we're seeing kind of the progress through the period that we're talking about from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s of these systems changing. So, you know, Elizabeth Ware Packard was involuntarily committed in 1860. They're saying by the middle of the 1950s, all commitments, nearly all commitments were taking place without a jury trial. So she did this advocacy after she was confined to include juries. Bills were passed. She was successful. But then by the middle of the 1900s, there's such a an appeal to the expertise of psychiatry. Psychiatry is ascendant by that time. And those experts are thought to be better situated to participate in involuntary confinements than juries are. And so it's back to a small number of people with that level of control, albeit people who have a kind of training that we assume wasn't present for the people involved in Elizabeth Ware Packard's case. Yeah, I think that this is another great example of history of madness as the history of power and who's holding it and what public structures are involved in at any given time. Yeah, who's situated to be granted power in the system and how do they perpetuate the, that power through the systems that exist? Yeah, so unfortunately the sexism doesn't end here um, and we need to talk about hysteria. Hysteria was not so much based on biological facts so much as it was based on social anxiety of women's role in society and how they were changing. As women gained more autonomy, their behavior needed to be explained. Um, and so it was explained through a psychiatric lens. Holly, what do women want? Women want their HRT. <laughs> <laughs> they sure darn do. <laughs> so it was born out of social anxieties that being too civilized led to nervousness and other issues. So there was this idea that people groups began as savages, then became civilized, but then might be prone to becoming over-civilized. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this trajectory when we talk about eugenics. Yeah, because this is a major component of eugenics, but we're just going to touch on it here just to give context to the hysteria. But hold that progression in mind as we revisit mm -hmm. it later. Yeah. So in this case, quote-unquote, savage people included Africans, Asians, indigenous peoples, Latin Americans, and sometimes just even white poor people. So basically everybody but the white, middle class, and rich. And that this over-civilization could result in lower fertility rates in women, that could result in nervousness, that could result in all, you know, acting out in different ways. But hysteria could refer, you know, which was a part of this over-civilization, could refer to any number of symptoms and was largely targeted at cis women. And that's in the name itself, right? Like men were also diagnosed with hysteria or like thought to have hysterical typology. But 
famously hysteria comes from women's anatomy than the word itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's the wandering womb, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. my understanding. So one doctor detailed the list of all the possible symptoms of hysteria, and it ran for 75 pages of just symptoms and descriptions. Treatments included anything from bed rest to bleedings to having a doctor jerk you off because they thought that that would cause a release for the patient. And I don't know that the doctors totally understood what they were doing. I think some of their patients did. And I think that while we giggle and sneer at this, like a lot of these procedures were not optional for some of the women and so right. we could we could look at this as a form of institutional violence as well absolutely i think um i mean it's sort of prurient by its nature and so i think people are tempted to kind of go down that road i think there's a lot of kind of pop culture narratives floating around about this aspect of history and while on the face of it, it does sound more pleasant than some of the other institutionalized procedures that we've outlined, it's still part of a form of patriarchal violence. So moving on, psychoanalysis is going to take hold during the 1900s, but we're not quite there yet. First, we need to talk about a group called the Mesmers. Way back in the Enlightenment, there was this idea of animal magnetism that was brought about. And animal magnetism was this strange fluid or vital force within the body that could be used to hypnotize and heal people. If this all sounds weird, it's because it really is. Um, mesmerism is named after Franz Anton Mesmer, which is where we get the word mesmerize. Um, he focused on moving this fluid through the body and avoiding blockages and using um, a person-to-person -person connection. Um, these blockages were thought to lead to illnesses, and so he would kind of massage those blockages using this fluid that he would manipulate without directly touching the fluid. <laughs> Mesmerism would find itself very popular into the next century, but it, this popularity was limited more to spiritualists. Some of the techniques of mesmerism were rebranded as hypnosis. And if you really want to fall into a Wikipedia rabbit hole, I definitely recommend looking up more about this character, Franz Anton Mesmer, who had this height of popularity and then was sort of driven out of town by fellow practitioners one of the practitioners of hypnosis was a doctor named yeah jean jean charcot we've been working on our french here at the middle of the club <laughs> jean charcot um who was famous for working with hysterical patients especially women and he was accused of experimenting on his patients he also famously used photography to sensationalize his patients and some of these photos are oddly sexual. Charcot had many pupils, including one, Sigmund Freud. Jacuz! That's my French. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're, now we're getting into psychoanalysis. So we have this chain of mesmerism to hypnosis to Freud. 
And some of these links are a little bit indirect and there's more underpinnings to Freudian thought than mesmerism, of course. But it's interesting to see this tra train and how direct it is. Mm -hmm. So some, th there was thinking at the time that only pe neurotic people, which could mean a lot of things, would be susceptible to hypnosis and that hysteria was a somatic disease. And so hypnosis did not find much support among Freud's fellow Austrian practitioners. They just didn't see an application for it. And I'm sure some of them also thought that it was quackery. Um, Freud was determined to find a somatic connection to mental illness. This later led to the development of psychoanalysis, later called the talking cure. Um, he moved towards psychological approaches rather than somatics later on in his career. So he kind of gives up on this somatic approach. And again, we're seeing this tension play out as we have over many of these episodes between body and psyche. What is the origin of madness? Somatics, the body, psyche, the mind. And where you were positioned on this had a lot to say about your own influences and what kind of approaches to treatments you'd advocate for. And Freud himself moved on this issue over the course of his career. He believed that neurosis and hysteria were due to unresolved childhood desires, and he really focused a lot on meaning and symbols. Um, he later developed the idea of the conscious and the unconscious mind. Not quite how that works, but that's kind of labeled as like an important contribution of his as kind of like a stepping stone. Unlike other treatments of the day, psychoanalysis actually listened to its patients, even though the actual treatment was problematic. In sharp contrast, there was a German psychiatrist, Emil Kraepelin, who helped found important ideas of research, uh, phrenology, and evidence-based approach. So a little bit of a mixed bag there. This guy's into phrenology. That's the measurement of skulls to try to determine mental capacity and other attributes of a person. It's a form of pseudoscience, but he is introducing some evidence-based approaches to psychiatry. He's known as the founding father of modern psychiatry, psychiatric eugenics, and psychopharmacology. So again, bit of a mixed bag here. An influential cataloger of scientific observations of the mad and a huge contrast to Freud. World War I helped reinforce the idea that trauma and madness were connected and that the symbolism and meaning-seeking of psychoanalysts might be able to help. Not everybody was able to afford going to a psychoanalyst, especially since treatment could last months or years. Psychoanalysts in the USA were much more optimistic and spread these ideas more widely Hollywood was heavily influenced by Freudian analysis. Psychoanalysis became a more dominant form of care for the mental illness in the U.S. than in many parts of Europe where it actually originated. And just to give some context of where we are in time, Freud was doing some of his studies on hysteria in 1895. So we're talking about the late 1800s when he's developing some of his most influential ideas. So then we get to psychosurgery. Igas Monis, a neurologist who practiced in Portugal, oversaw the world's first leucotomy. 
in November 1935. A leucotomy involves essentially separating the frontal lobe from the rest of the brain. Moniz eventually won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1949 for the invention of the leucotomy which gives you some idea of how it was initially perceived. He published his results the following year, and they were taken up by the American neurologist Walter Freeman. Freeman was an evangelist of this procedure in the U.S., and he is very bound up in its history and popularization. He streamlined the surgical technique and renamed the procedure the lobotomy. Freeman's quotations describing the process are disturbing. Patients would remain awake under local anesthesia while he would ask questions cut on their brain until they showed signs of confusion or disorientation. Freeman eventually simplified the procedure, enabling him to perform the operation on patients in even greater numbers. His technique was, by its very nature, imprecise. He was a true believer in lobotomies. And so for him, it was better to have more of them done less precisely than to have an extremely precise method. Yeah, and to my understanding and from what I've heard of him, he also really valued the ability to work alone and with somebody who had tension with some of his colleagues. Yes, he originally worked with a partner who was the more trained and competent neurosurgeon, but he eventually performed the procedures himself, though his kind of strengths were not in neurosurgery. And he made changes that enabled lobotomies to be an essentially an in-office procedure, which I think also is pretty disturbing. Freeman was far from the only person performing lobotomies, however. By 1951, over 18,000 people in the U.S. had been lobotomized. Lobotomies increased in the aftermath of World War II when asylums were under heavy critique. True believers like Freeman thought that lobotomies and psychosurgery held hope, maybe the only hope, that people could return to a conventional pattern of life outside of institutions, which is a really interesting tension because people are realizing that institutions aren't a cure-all. We're losing faith in institutions, so he has this new thing come in. In this pattern that we've seen before, where someone introduces this new idea, everybody gets on board, and then they find out that it doesn't work. Yeah, it's this kind of eternal hope in a cure, with people denying the evidence of their senses and their own scientific training to latch onto that cure. So this is a fascinating case where glowing early reception gives way to total condemnation and very quickly. Initially, Times... Time magazines in 1942 called it a drastic method of rescuing psychotic patients from complete insanity. However, there are rafts of testimonials and evidence that other people experience fatal brain hemorrhaging, lost of the ability to empathize or speak coherently, or wound up completely incapacitated. There were some people who had lobotomies and were just fine and went back to their normal lives. But that was not the case for everybody, and it was at a high rate of failure. So, pivoting a little bit, something that's happening more culturally at the time as opposed to in the um, medical field. During the 1800s, um, elites and intellectuals in the United States and Europe began stating concern around the idea of 
feeble-mindedness within the population and declining birth rates of the upper class. So this is where we're tagging back a little bit to that conversation we were having about hysteria and this idea of over-civilization. So if you recall when we were kind of talking about that idea of kind of a sort of evolutionary or pseudo-evolutionary idea of progressive civilization with this inherent racist approach. So those ideas are, are baked into this movement that we're about to talk about. The concern was that feeble-mindedness would outbreed the sane and society would be overrun with all these feeble-minded people. Various movements and programs were aimed at curtailing this wave of supposed inferiority, which was largely thought to reside within poor and uneducated people. This is a sort of like panic of the elites about the future of civilization. Here, uneducatedness and feeble-mindedness were associated with higher rates of crime. Early family planning efforts were directed at this issue. So Planned Parenthood actually gets its start around this time. In the U.S., this movement would reach its height starting in 1880, um, inspiring eugenic movements in Nazi Germany. And to be clear, this movement is eugenics. Many U.S. states passed laws prohibiting marriage of the quote, unfit, and in some cases involuntarily sterilize the feeble-minded or those they considered to be feeble-minded. By 1940, all but two U.S. states would have compulsory sterilization laws on the books. There was also a Supreme Court decision, Buck v. Bell, in 1927, the Supreme Court decided 8-1 to one that there was no violation of the Constitution to involuntarily sterilize the unfit. So at the highest levels of government, they're saying that to sterilize people is okay as long as they are unfit or disabled or fill-in-the-blank, however they're using that metric. Yeah, and I, I think sitting with this feels really important, that this is a kind of like this is an active program carried out by the U.S. government, by those in power to manage the experience of people who they consider to be less than. As we mentioned earlier, this did jump across the Atlantic. Um, this, the Nazis were influenced by the practices within the U.S., and between January 1940 and August 1941, 1,273 people who were allegedly mentally unfit were murdered by the Nazis with the collusion of German psychiatrists. This was obviously part of a larger genocidal program of Jewish people and Roma and... Political opponents. It's the Holocaust. We know about it. Yeah, it's the Holocaust. This is part of the Holocaust. But people with mental illnesses were some of the first victims of new techniques of mass murder, which I think says something about the eugenic and ableist predisposition of Europeans at this point in time, and specifically German, that when the Nazis came around to start killing people and they wanting to gas disabled people, you know, there were people who were willing to do this and there were also people who stood up against this and said that this is not okay and we're going to try to coordinate against this but right i mean along with all of the holocaust many people at many different levels had knew colluded and were involved in 
these efforts. It takes a big, it takes a big engine to drive this kind of mass death. And so many, many people had eyes into this and participated, colluded, aided, carried out these programs. And I think it's a reminder that the extreme conclusion of ableist ideas is death, like is violence. If you carry these ideas to their end, the end is violence. They are inherently violent ideas. So prior to the Holocaust, Hitler's regime launched a program of mass sterilization following the American model. 300 to 400,000 German patients were sterilized between 1934 and 1939. Nazi medical experimentation on concentration camp inmates, which frequently resulted in death, was later taken up by post-war psychiatrists looking for radical cures for mental illness. Prolonged hypothermia is an example of such experimentation. And I think this is important because I think there's a long history of temptation and practice of seeing Nazism as contained and an aberration in terms of its ideology. And we can see influence back and forth. So even as the U.S. began to distance itself from eugenics, following the hideous examples of Nazism, psychiatrists in the U.S. didn't wholesale reject the quote-unquote experimentation that Nazis did during the war. And there's some evidence of psychiatrists essentially taking up, for example, hypothermia, which, you know, experiments that were carried out with extreme cruelty, and saying, well, why don't we give this a try? And I think that's something that I find quite horrifying. Yeah, well, you also look at, like, what was happening in the U.S. ahead of the Holocaust, and they were experimenting with exposure, mm-hmm. exposing people to hot and cold and seeing if that made a difference in their behavior. Right. So I think rather than seeing the Nazi program as... Um, an aberration in worldview and politics and science and views of the body and views of hierarchy, I think we can and must see it as part of the eugenic program of the West. Yeah, it's just one facet of that program that took it to an extreme that others maybe wished that they could have, but didn't for whatever reason. (sighs) So Maya, what are you still processing? I think before we move on to what we're processing, or maybe what I'm still processing is kind of the whole episode, because we've covered so much in our conversation in the last half hour or so. Um, We have many, many people in institutions in the U.S., institutions growing to have thousands of inmates, thousands of residents. We have treatments being used in those institutions that you know, essentially amount to torture, but this kind of wide range of latitude to engage in experimental and unproven practices with patients and kind of with a sort of laissez-faire, let's see what will work attitude. And, you know, the backdrop of all of this in the later half of the 1800s and early 1900s, all the way through World War II, is, are these eugenicist ideas um, and this idea of kind of hierarchy and superiority, the fit and the unfit. These are ideas that are really mobilizing 
racist practices, differential practices, the way that people with disabilities, with mental disabilities are being treated in this context, and anxieties about class. And those same anxieties are fueling this particular case of how hysteria is being treated. Moving away from institutions, we also have Freud's development of his ideas and kind of outpatient talk therapy models that then become very influential in the US. And that's a kind of also a move away from institutions, potentially. Um, those are practices that were developed in office settings, not in institutional settings, and have a different kind of background and methodological approach. Um, and kind of a densely kind of symbolic one, interpretive one, and ultimately kind of turn more to that psychological thread than the body-based thread that some of these experimental, I hesitate to say treatments in asylums, were more kind of focused on the body. So we have that split. And then along with, or kind of separate from Freud, but kind of again in the early 1900s, we have psychosurgery start to take hold. So that's also an anti-institutional practice that's more body-based rather than more psychologically based. And then we see eugenics kind of culminate in forced sterilization programs in the US and the murderous mass killing programs in Nazi Germany. So that's kind of the stew that we've been going over. Yeah, and I think amidst that whole stew, I'm still processing this yo-yoing that we seem to be doing. And we've seen this now over several episodes, over several time periods, where people think that they have cures for madness. Someone's like, oh, I've got the brand new thing, this will do it. Um, and it turns out to not work. And then people kind of despair and let the mentally ill or the mad languish under this system that doesn't work until something else happens and then, you know, we throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. And we're seeing that again here and we're going to see it next episode too. Yeah, I think there's something about this like cavalier certainty of power holders about the effectiveness of whatever practice they're currently touting and that certainty leading to lasting harm done mm -hmm. to the people in their care. So whether that's insulin comas to treat madness, whether that's lobotomies and leucotomies, whether that's the eugenicist impulse to sterilize, which again is like being delivered through this lens of kind of certainty and social good. All of these things are kind of being enacted by people in power on people who are vulnerable in these systems. Yeah, and the other thing that like sticks out to me is that at very few points in history has the reaction to the mad been to make us comfortable. It's been to get us to shape up. And I think that that's part of what's driving the cure narrative. And also kind of a lack of empathy to the extent that if madness is such a hideous outcome that literally any attempt is better than leaving things be, that creates this huge permissiveness for all kinds of abusive behavior. Right, because if nothing's worse than madness... Why wouldn't I? Yeah, why wouldn't Why wouldn't we... I try to drown you? Or do many of the other practices that are truly so hideous that it's like dangerous to just casually talk about. So it's it's a really twisted form of logic as opposed to and like for every like time I criticize something like this, I always try to like give an alternative so that people can envision something else, but like 
you know, think about a world where instead of going, well, we don't understand what causes madness, so we're going to beat people until they stop being mad. Because that's all that we can think of, and that makes things easier for us. Or we see kind of some vague circumstantial evidence that somebody's pattern of behavior changes after a sudden shock, which may be because they're literally in shock. Yeah, so, like, what if the alternative was, and I think we saw this in, like, the medieval episode, where it's just like, what if we, you know, in the Islamic world, where they're like, well, what if we made people comfortable? What about the retreat um, run by the Quakers? You know, what if we just made people comfortable? We don't understand what causes madness, but we can make people comfortable. And I do think that some of the early optimism around asylums were coming out of a model of compassionate care and so there's this odd perversity of when we have environments where people are cared for and we do see good results that encourages more building of institutions and the growth of institutions which then become unmanageable and in themselves hopeless Mm -hmm. so what was once evidence for kind of compassionate treatment becomes a mechanism by which more people suffer And that's something that I've been sitting with kind of throughout all of this research and that I may never stop processing. Yeah. So a better world is possible, even if we don't know everything that's going on. And I think that there's, you know, kind of in line with what you're saying, making people comfortable can be a a less interventionist approach. And I think some of the most egregious wrongdoing that we see in this history comes from people making interventions that turn out to be harmful. There is a lesson here in care and patience rather than hubristic intervention, which I think anyone could predict based on their intuition. But I think, I think the medical model may have something to do with all of this, that as m- madness is medicalized, the approach of medicine is curative. It's to take action to induce a cure. And in the case of madness, that's proven to have really hideous results. Yeah, as opposed to the social model, which tries to contextualize and to understand to the best of our degree and is more prone to, at least in what I've seen, harm reduction models where you're not trying to cure, you're just trying to keep someone as safe as you can while preserving their autonomy. And, you know, people who were in favor of lobotomies often cited the poor conditions in asylums for a reason to pursue something so aggressive, Mm -hmm. rather than either changing the asylum system, rather than questioning the approach or their frameworks. They cut into people's brains instead. And what if they just hadn't done that? What if they had just not (laughs) they had done literally anything but that (laughs) yeah and i think that that should give us caution like in our justice frameworks too of like when is when are we better served by questioning our frameworks rather than taking action Mm -hmm. especially when it intervenes in people's individual lives or in their health when we see challenges when we see people suffering we want to do Yeah, we want to take action, but it also needs to be on their terms as well, because they're the ones that are actually suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where the harm reduction comes in, and being available to people. And where the power holding comes in. Like, if your doctor tells you that this is the procedure that will help you, 
that carries a lot of weight. Yeah, it really, really does. Because you're trusting somebody who's got expertise. Mm -hmm. And that's where asking for a second opinion comes in or, you know, doing a little bit of research yourself comes in if that's available to you. But it's still a major power imbalance. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of tension to be held there where it's like not not every medical system intervention is inherently going to be proven to be harmful in the ways that lobotomies and leucotomies have been. But um, I think when it comes to when it comes to madness, I think that there's just a lot of merit in employing a higher degree of kind of care and empathy and social support than at least we're being offered during this time period than we know is being offered now. So what, I think you've already answered this a little bit, but what's your takeaway from this episode? I think we did talk a bit about my takeaways as, as I was processing. I think I was trying to pull out what I want to take away from this. Um, I think, you know, a caution against hubris and over-intervention in people's experiences feels really important. I think the context of ableism, racism, and classism and where they intersect and how all of that was fueling abusive practices um, feels like really important. Um, and I think that there's important context and kind of the density of this period of time, um, mm -hmm. in terms of the wrangling between the brain and the body, the psyche mm -hmm. and the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel similarly. I feel like my, what I'm still processing and what's my takeaway are really similar as well. I think my takeaway is the need for a social model. As opposed to a medical model. So, you know, people first, solutions tailored to individuals and what they express as a need and a want. I think another takeaway that I have, too, is when you're talking about the social model, just thinking about all the people who were swept up into these treatment approaches. It's like, we live among people and the descendants of people who were swept into asylum systems, um, who were lobotomized. There are people who were lobotomized as young children who are with us today. Um, you know, we, th these, there's untold numbers of people who kind of experienced the, um, these swings and approach that we've described in this episode and that's affected many lives. And some people didn't survive. Like we have deaths we have losses because of these practices too. And not just in Nazi Germany. And I think it's important to remember and mourn them and celebrate their contributions in their lives and honor the people who are with us who've gone through these things. I think that's a good place to cut it off. The book recommendation is Patient HM by Luke Dittrich. Um, this book is a journalistic account of the history of lobotomies by focusing on a person who is one of the most heavily studied neurological patients who went by the initials HM. And it also has some personal memoir writing. There's a connection between the author and some of the people that he talks about in the book. So there's a density there. But I do think that, you know, this issue is personal and nothing strictly historical. Um, and I think that the history that he does, including making that link between um, psychiatric 
experimental approaches in the U.S. and Nazism. I think that's a link that he draws that's important and effective. Um, and it's really strongly written. Great. Thank you for bringing that to us. All right. I'm Holly. I'm Maya. And this has been the Bedlam Book Club. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.